Hello, and welcome to On Record In Conversation. I'm Jess Collins from the Birmingham Music Archive. In this podcast series, recorded in front of a live studio audience, we explore the vibrant and diverse music history, heritage and culture of Birmingham through the stories of some of those who have shaped and continue to influence the city's musical landscape. In this episode, Adrian Goldberg talks to Lekan Babalola. Originally from Nigeria, Lekan is a Grammy award-winning jazz percussionist and musician known for his innovative style, using his mother tongue Yoruba infused with traditional music, Afrobeat and funky dance overtones. Adrian asks about his varied career, started as fellow Kuti's protégé, to working with Spike Lee and why he chose to adopt Birmingham as his home. Delighted to welcome one of the great Birmingham contemporary artists, a percussionist and a musician who was settled in the city after being born in Lagos, Nigeria. Along the way, after studying film, he worked on Spike Lee's movie, Malcolm X. He's been a musical accomplice to legendary jazz drummer Art Blakey and has also worked with Prince, Branford Marsalis, Roy Ayers, David Byrne, Damon Albarn and more. In 2006, he became Nigeria's first Grammy Award winner for his work in Ali Farkature's In the Heart of the Moon, and he won a second Grammy in 2009. Give a big hand, please, to Lakon Babalola. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with Birmingham 2022, Lakon, and this album on record. Tell us about your contribution to that. Well, we got an email from... From Collins. Jess Collins, yeah. yeah. And uh, it was my partner, a composer I work with, and uh, who I married to as well, a wonderful Kate Luxmore, who told me that they're asking, are we interested in contributing to an album about Birmingham? And uh, we jumped on it. It's an opportunity to, to be part of the music scene, because that's one of the reasons I personally came here. I've been coming to Birmingham many years, apart from my family connection, who has a church on Gillard Road. I've been coming to Birmingham to be um, artist in resident at the Birmingham Conservatoire. That was just there uh, with uh, Professor Mark Lockett. I was an artist in resident many years ago. So I like Birmingham. And it's kind of, Birmingham to me is, um, there's a part of Birmingham that I think is like Harlem which is Hansworth. So because of that, and because of great uh, jazz musician who was here before, that I really love, uh, Handy Hamilton, I connect Birmingham. And, and also, we were told that Birmingham, the library has the largest collection of African diaspora books in the 70s, like books that you will see in Schomburg in Harlem. And um, yeah, so... We jump on the records. Yeah, so how do you try and interpret Birmingham or what you love about Birmingham and somehow put that into music? Well, Birmingham, it is uh, an industrial city and um, it has a canal and like Amsterdam. So in the mythology of the people I come from, which are Yoruba people, Birmingham is a metallic city and also a riverine, the, the canal. The canal, yeah. So they use it for trading. So Birmingham is an Ogun city in the Yoruba, Yoruba philosophy or Yoruba way of thinking. And also it is a city of Oshun, which is love. And uh, so it's metallic and it's, it's love here. 
So that's what we try to combine on the song, Wilmore Road. And Wilmore Road is uh, where I, I, we bought our house in the north of Birmingham. It is a road full of immigrants within the metropolis of the English sensibility. So it's to kind of carve that idea of what is metallic, what is love, and what is community, and what is celebration out of that record. That's what we tried to do. Yeah, and Wilmore Road sort of on the border of Hansworth and Perry Bar, isn't That's right. it? And yes. you say it's a street full of immigrants. Birmingham is a city that is made up of immigrants, isn't uh-huh. it? Do you feel that welcome as somebody who's come and settled here in Birmingham? Yes. <laughs> in a Hesita- funny way. Hesi- hesitation? Um, well, it's part of the country. You can't separate it from the English sensibility. But it is uh, a city of power because that's what uh, the founder of the Industrial Revolution, James Worth and Martin Bolton said. We did a project one time. He said, I can sell you power. And it is a city that the English people have sold power to the rest of the world. Jewelry making, the car, the Land Rover, which was part of the power of the empire, of the colony. And it's a city where you don't know as a foreigner, when you come here, it's like, are you coming to look for power or have you been given power? But the industriality of the society is what welcomes you, I think. It's like Detroit. It's a working city. It's, it's a, a working busy city, city. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like when the Idi Amin sent out the immigrant of the Asian. They came here. Majority came here. And they fuse in the, a part of the economy. They contribute. And the city benefits from it. So it's like give and take. You contribute, you get something. A long way from where you were born in Lagos in Nigeria. Tell me a little bit about growing up. Um... I was born in Lagos. Lagos is an island. I was born on the island. I was born like uh, in the General Hospital, the Colonial Hospital. I was born in 1960, May 15. So the English government left Nigerian government 1960, October. So maybe my coming to life kicked them out. (laughs) We don't know. (laughs) Um, I was born in a city that was very, very, very... Still is vibrant. Everything was good. Everything was there. My youth was very... I was born in the era of British Airways. B-O-A-C, if you know what I mean. I was born in the period that everything that is English was good there. And what kind of childhood did you have? Okay. I was born into a cherubim and seraphim church. My father was a product like maybe Harrow College or Eton of that. So my mother is from the institution like maybe uh, Rodin, the school in Brighton. So they are public school product. And were these, uh, they've been to sort of Nigerian public schools but modelled on those British public schools? Yes, yeah. yes, of yeah. course. It's, it's the whole system. And then, uh, so you... Had that education growing up, you know, it was very middle class, really. Very English. But at the same time, you are growing up as a Yoruba. The values are very, very Yoruba. It's very, to say, a 
an English boy growing up in Somerset or Dorset. So my parents were very that English. And um, you play tennis, you do the Boy Scout, <laughs> Boys Brigade, Girls Guide for my mother. And uh, my mother was part of the uh, Women Advance Society who were campaigning along with Fela's mother. So it was not feminism. It was a woman standing up for women's rights. My mother was part of the people that let the king abdicate the throne. So it was these women who were educated at the same time. By the way, my mother was older than my father. I come from that tradition. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that was a tradition. Tell me more. Yeah, it is a tradition of the Yoruba people. You don't marry somebody who's younger than you. It's looked upon. But in some society, in some class, some rebels do it. My mother is one of the rebels. So I grew up in a home that I saw women leading things. Yeah, men at the back. And, um, and the education was very strong. So all the things we were told, it's just education, education, education. And Fellahi, you've referenced there, is the great African musician and band leader, Fela Kuti. He was a family relative of yours. Yes, Fela was a distant cousin. And um, so how we have the same street, in fact, more than Fela, because he's older. So I was growing up in a church compound, for example, and then I would play music three hours every day, nine o'clock service, 12 o'clock, three o'clock, six o'clock, nine o'clock back again. And if it's a length period, you will play three o'clock, nine o'clock. Yeah, you'll be playing at that. And Bible was like the thing, you know. But at the same time, I was growing up because my grandmother is uh, the Masons, traditional Masons. So you have that growing up within the palace structure, uh, coming from a Masons family. So you have to observe the Yoruba rites of the Babalao. Then my father's family, they were Muslim. So you are growing up observing the Western education, the traditional of the Yoruba culture, and also the Muslim tradition. So every time the Muslim is doing celebration, we're part of it. If we go to the country home to see my grandfather, and when the Christian are doing events, we're part of it. And when the Gungun Festival is going on, yeah. So, never rest. But you say your father then was a, a big figure in a, a Christian church, the, the kind of celestial church. Yes. Um, my it, father, it's a kind of a class thing that is going on. My mother is up there. My father is up there too, but not up there like my mother. So... My father was a public school boy, but he was a Muslim. And you cannot marry the uh, Christian family. So my father converted because of my mother, because he, he loves her. He converted to be a Christian. So then the kind of Christian my father converted to now, is not your Church of England or Methodist like my mother. He converted to uh, cherubim and seraphim. They wear white garments. And it's like um, Pocono um, in Jamaican culture. Pocono, they call it. 
yeah, and, and this yeah. this was a church where people spoke in tongues. Yeah, they speak in tongues. It's like they reenact re- the Acts of Apostles, chapter two, whereby they go in spirit. They speak in tongues. You know, if you go to maybe a Jamaican blues party, those days when I used to go and see Jashaka, when the MC, when they really speak in tongues, it's like the way the Trev tribes, we do it. Not the commercial sound system. The way they speak in tongues, it's like a possession. And then the Africans speak in tongues. Then they will prophesy. The music is totally different. It's the music is the catch of it. It's like Pentecostal. It's like the Pentecostal music that the African in diaspora play, which is away from the Church of England or, or Catholic. Yeah, music. Yeah. yeah. But you're exposed then to a really rich tapestry of cultures growing up in Nigeria. When did you first realise you had some talent with percussion? Um, well, I was growing up, you know, in the church with percussion all the time since I was born. I had a cowbell in my hand at the age of three. My father would not let me go on a skane drum until the age of nine, I remember. Because 1970 was my big birthday party when I was 10. Yeah, I remember. It was a big thing, 1969. Yeah. And what's, what's that drum then? What drum were you allowed What's the samba drum? He Between kept me on cowbell. He said one day <laughs> you're going to be thanking me that keeping time was the thing. He just kept me on cowbell, cowbell, cowbell. <laughs> and I would go, man, I would throw it away. And I would call. Then the one Sunday, then he allowed me on drum. Because my father played accordion, you see. And then he allowed me on drum. It's like, wow. And were you grateful to your dad yeah, for keeping very. you on the cowbell? Yeah, 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 very. Yeah? Yeah, very. Because I, it's something now that I became a professional musician. And when I went to Cuba, I realized that that cowbell was the clave, those two sticks was like, yeah, that's the thing that you have to learn in contemporary music in Cuba. You have to learn that. Even in New Orleans, you have to play cowbell. So you were making your way in the world of music, but you came to the UK to study engineering. (laughs) How does that happen? Um, My father brought the Graham bus, American Graham bus, to Nigeria in 1970 when we discovered the oil. Nigerian discovered the oil is a big thing. You know, the infrastructure was great in Lagos. So we're going to be traveling luxury around national now. My father, among with his contemporary friends, brought the Greyhound bus to Nigeria. Then the idea is that, okay, I'll study his trade, become a transporter. And he wants me to be an engineer, you know. I don't know why my father thinks I'll be a good pilot. So, yeah, it was aeronautical engineering. I got a scholarship to come to the Chelsea College of Aeronautics and Automobile Engineering in Shoreham by sea. In Sussex, near Brighton, yeah? yeah? near Worthing. It was like the culture shock of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I had a scholarship, yeah, to come and study and be an automobile engineering, come aeronautic engineering, in Brighton those days, in Shoreham, it was the airport. This is the school, you know. People have private planes. And so that was the plan for my father. Yeah, that was, that was your father's plan yes. for you. What about your plan for you? I didn't have no plan. I just want to get out of Lagos. I didn't have no plan. I just want to get out because everywhere I go... My father died in 1975. 
And everywhere I turned to, it was just brutality. It was army, fella was in trouble. Oh, you can't go to fella's house. The army is miles away. I just want to get out of Nigeria. I didn't know. It's done on me now. Maybe I use my parents' name, my parents' influential name, right? Mm. To go to the Ministry of Education in Bridgefree Road that day in Papa. And uh, then the guy said, ah, you're the son of... And I filled the form. Then I got a scholarship. I got an admission letter at the Chelsea College of Aeronautics and Automobile Engineering Insurance. Then um, I just want to get out. So you then ended up studying film at art college. How did you make that leap? Uh, When I was at the University of London, after I'd done a little bit of the engineering, I was doing transport management at Burbank College, University of London. Yeah. Then one afternoon, I followed a friend of mine to Soho. We went to Carnaby Street. And that was the end of the engineering, uh, transport management. There was a gentleman called, he's a filmmaker, Ian Heslop. Ian Heslop went to Central at that time. But there was a girl called Catherine Marshall who came round to where I was in London that time. I was following a musician around. There was a musician called Gaspar Lawal, who used to be percussionist for the Rolling Stone. So I went to Gaspar's house one day when Fela took me to Glastonbury in 84, my first Glastonbury. So when I came back from Glastonbury, that was the turning point that, wow, what's this? What is this thing? The Glastonbury scene Fela on stage. I just went to Fela's hotel in Russell Square that day. When we came back from Glastonbury, I said, I can't do this anymore. And of course, you know, Barber College is down the road in Russell Square, University of London. I couldn't go to the lecture. I couldn't do it. <laughs> I just said, that was it. But I called my mother in Lagos. You know, they still have the landline. I called my mother, who was a nurse, midwife, working at the general hospital. I said, I can't do engineering transport anymore. My mother said, what do you want to do? Because Catherine Marshall have allowed me to do a soundtrack for her fame. That time was Tascam Studio, four tracks. I was banging this Moroccan bongo. And Catherine realized, oh, you can play drums. And then everywhere I go around London that time to parties, people have bongos on the floor, and I would just pick it up and play. And then I begin to, somebody was telling me that, oh, you can do this, come and play mine. So gradually, gradually, music was pulling, whereby the engineering was going away. So I had to call my mother because I come from a family whereby it's all about education. And my mother said, uh, you must go to college to study music or whatever. So after I've done the soundtrack for a friend of mine, Catherine Marshall, she's a film director. We did the work, and this woman said for me to support her. It was an excuse just to get away from college, right? I followed, find a new partner, a new friend. So I followed that thread of line, and I end up one day in front of HOD at Central St. Martins. The rest is that I became a student at St. Martins School of Arts. So your mom didn't mind as long as you were doing something that was educational, yeah? yeah? 
So yeah, I just have to go and get something. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, some kind of certificate, yeah. some letters to yeah. your name. Yeah. But you ended up studying film. Yeah, as well as fine art film. And, That's the matter. And you worked on the movie The Making of Malcolm X but well, with Spike Lee. When I left Film St. Martins, I saw an advert. I wanted to go to the National Film School in Baconsfield to do music composition. So I was just trying to grab whatever. And when I got an admission at the... Well, I got an interview at Baconsfield, National Film School then. And the guy looked at me and said, no, you're not a film director. <laughs> music, yeah. But I didn't study music. And then didn't take me. So I saw another advert for Northern School of Film and Television in Sheffield. And it's a new school opened by ITV that time because the National Film School is for the BBC. So I applied as a director. And then they saw my showreel. That time in Soho, I managed to do one or two directions of pop video. You know, we were young. We go and borrow the camera from uh, Charlie at... Uh, Storeroom in, in Central St. Martins on Friday. We can just shoot whatever in Soho and put music to it and beg somebody in post-production in, in Soho help us out. So I managed to get a show reeler. Yeah, and yeah. I got accepted. I went to yeah. Northern Film School. Became the first black director there. So when I left film school now, a friend of mine called Terence Blanchard, who used to work with a Blakey and Don Harrison, sax player, because one time I was like a servant, like a PA for a Blake in London. And then um, I got to hear that Spike Lee, one guy called Spike Lee in America, African-American, who came out of NYU. This guy now is making Malcolm. Who's Malcolm? Then I forgot the fella has already told about Malcolm. So when I end up in New York, he was making the making of Malcolm. He's already making the movie. So Monty Ross, who's the producer, who worked on the fame with Ernest Dickinson, the cameraman, got me to be Spike assistant to shadow him. How good was that to work with Spike Lee? I was just following, <laughs> carrying back. I didn't do anything, just observing him on set. That time at the film school, you were told to study the director. So the director I wanted to study is Peter Greenaway, the mm. English director who mm. made The Carpenter, you know. About as far from Spike Lee but as it's far impossible from to imagine so, a movie director. End up in New York, <laughs> making of Malcolm. I was in Brooklyn, mm. and that was it. But music had already started to take off as a career as well. You'd already made an acquaintance with Art Blakey in London? No, as a musician. As a filmmaker who wants to be making movie about jazz musicians, that was my thing at the film school. I didn't even know I'm going to become a percussionist. But it was art said to me one day that, you better go and get your hand dirty. Meaning, go and find a band. I've, I met a producer. The band name that time in London is called Rip, Reagan and Panic. Oh, yeah. Nene Cherry yeah. was part of that band. The bass player, Sean Oliver, was part of that band. It was like the band of the Portobello. My life that time was like, yeah, from King's Road, Hammersmith, Roma about in Portobello, just end up somewhere on somebody's floor in Kilburn. <laughs> it's a walking distance. You don't cross the bridge. So I end up in Portobello with uh, Nana Sherry. And uh, Sean Oliver will be producing the band. And that led me to working with Trans. Trent Darby, Wishing Well, 
And that was it. That was the beginning. Just tell me about how your career progresses then, because you've obviously then started to make your mark in London. And is it, from then on, is it a question of word of mouth, meeting musicians who take a shine to you, who rate your playing? Is that just one gig to another, one band to another? Yeah, exactly as yeah. you said. Because there's no mobile phone, there's no uh, Wi-Fi, whatever. That you get going to gigs and gigs and gigs and gigs. Ronnie Scott became my house, actually. I was actually living permanently, working at Scott's. Yeah, I was a cloakroom boy for about a few years in Ronnie Scott's. Um, you, name, you name it. All the jazz club in London was my home. Because you, you have to be going from one to the other, mm. looking for... You, you are now a musician, and you are now trying to beat... Just before we started recording this, I was chatting to you about working with Malcolm X, and I wondered whether, in some ways, that had provoked a, a greater understanding, a kind of African consciousness within you, but you, you, you didn't seem to think that was the case. No. You've already been told. Fella was singing it, but we don't know what he was talking about in Lagos, you know. And you're getting Bob Marley. No, you're getting Jimmy Cleave to come and visit Fella. You are getting... Stokely Carmichael. Stokely Carmichael, yeah, yeah. the Black Panthers. Yeah, yeah the Black yeah. Panthers Yeah, that came in to see Fela. And then you get people like um, Stevie Wonder came to see Fela. You get Royers came to see Fela. You get Lester Bowie. So you get that voice of that large element coming, especially Festa, you know, happening in Nigeria. But we were not really, really that conscious of it. The Festa that happened... It happened in Nigeria because we discover oil and then we're supposed to host the black world. It's not that we are really that political conscious. Even that fella that got it that time, it, it's a personal thing with fella among his contemporaries. It wasn't kind of a national thing because fella didn't, fella didn't really translate to another city like Lagos or Ibadan. No. I think it was art that did it for me. And also one day when I first moved here. Because we were not told about the slave trade. We were not. When I saw a, a, a Rasta in Brixton, he had his hat like this. And his trouser was so beautiful, short to his thing. And he was confidently walking. And I asked him, I went to him, hey, I like the way you walk. Where are you from? He said, Jamaica. It's like, where is that? We didn't know. Jamaica. Yeah. So uh, this goes back to your... It was art that did it for me. Yeah, to your upbringing. It was still a very sort of European consciousness in the schools that you I went mean, to. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what did art bring to you then? How did, and how did he communicate to you? It was art that told me one, one night at this hotel that, you know about slave trade? And he, he said I should go and read uh, Beneath the Underdog Man. That's the first book that opened my eye to the whole by Mingus. And you know, I don't know why I told me about Mingus. He didn't tell me about uh, Dr. King or anything. He just said, go and read Beneath the Underdog. So is the crunchiness of the music that blew my heart, my life, man. That, wow. 
like 30 million of Africans just perish in the Middle Passage alone, man. And Art said, that music is what we're playing. And that's what blew my life, man. As an African, kind of, wow. And you can hear it in, this, in the music, you know. Yeah, sort of what, in hard bop music? Well, yeah, you hear it in, in, in Straight Ahead. You hear it. I mean, those period of, of Straight Ahead from 60s of Train, Rashid Ali, Mingos, all those apostles of the foreigners, I mean, they were playing Sivarok, man. You don't need to hear the words of maybe Dr. King or Medgar Evers or Frederick Douglass or... Wow, you just need to hear the music. He's the music that did it for me, that, wow. Damn, this is so deep, man. And people who are further back can't see you've got tears streaming down your face. Oh, man, sorry, man. Like, it's okay. It connects deep. Yeah. It's there in the music. And you, and you musically now, even now, you, you try and do honour to that tradition. Well, I've been privileged to, to play with the masters. I mean, I was touring with Ferro Sanders and uh, our man, Irving Jones, and Abbe Lincoln. It's a privilege, yeah. Tell me how you came to Birmingham. After living many years in the West Country, you know, because um, after I came back from New York, I know I can't live in London anymore, you know what I mean? But I, I, I wanted a space, you know, and trying to bring up a family. So I went and lived in the West Country in England, Somerset, near Glastonbury, you know. And it was getting tough there because of... Um, there are tribes there, the, the English tribe, which is okay for me, but my partner, is, she's English. And she doesn't really understand that integration of um, how it works. But, yeah, I can understand, you know, it's not racism. It's a, it's a class structure that is going on. But the children, the race thing became to be the vocal thing. So we came and live in Birmingham, which, you know, I first kind of many years ago and... Um, I did a project here called the KLLB many, many years ago with a Caribbean musician, an English musician, um, Colin Peters, uh, one of the wonderful bass players maybe in the country, Ray Prince, their cousins. And it was kind of like a jazz funk element of that thing. And uh, then we came back here to Birmingham. But, you know, Birmingham, is, it, it has a sound, you know, like Bristol has a sound, Detroit has a sound. From Lagos, I've been following the steel pulse sound of the Hansworth thing and thinking that maybe if one be able to blend the Afrobeat thing that we have in Lagos with the Jamaican reggae thing, yeah, you might get a new sound. So I, I guess I came to Birmingham for music. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the integration has been more successful in Birmingham than it was in the West Country. Musically, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about winning Grammy Awards and, and how important that was for you, you know, the, the first Nigerian to win a Grammy. Ah, I need to correct that. By the way, Nigeria is kind of what you guys created. And um, the first Nigerian to win a Grammy, I would think, is Babatunde Olatunji from Make a Heart. You know Babatunde Olatunji. Mm. He was a percussionist 
who taught people like John Coltrane, the Yoruba sensibility, Max Roach, and uh, he was up there in Harlem. You know, the last recording of John Coltrane was done at the center in Harlem. I think he will be the first Grammy Nigerian winner. Um, he works with Mickey Hart, Mickey Hart of Grateful Dead. My achievement is by grace of God. I mean, he, he came with working with Alpha Kature. Uh, Nick Gold, who's the producer for Bonavista Social Club, who produced Andy Hamilton, uh, saw me touring with Roy Ayers and the African Jazz Hostiles. We did a Babican show, and he said he's recording an album with a Malian blues player, Alifa Kature. So we went to Livingstone Studio in London, um, Ray Kuda was on it, and Kachao, one of the top legendary Cuban bass player, was on the album. So we, it was about five of us, but it's not, I think maybe Raikuda, they would be like jazz musician up there. And Kachao, Raikuda's son, he's a percussionist too. Jacob, I think is his name. Jacob, yeah. yeah. And um, it was a magical album, man. You're doing this thing, you're just doing it. You didn't know where it's going to go. I was at my agent out one day on my way to Japan in Kilburn. He said, congratulations. I said, congratulations to what? I said, I'm about to miss my flight. He said, oh, you've just been nominated. Nominated for what? Grammy. Amen. I didn't know what is called Grammy, man. I, I didn't have no clue. Maybe he was speaking French that day. Not until uh, Nicole said, wow, you won a Grammy. So we were the second group to win the world music category. The first people that won it were the Grateful Dead, Babatunde Olatuji. So we were the second to win that category, the world music. And working with Cassandra Wilson for the second one, it was... Um, yeah, we, did, we didn't mention that yet. The second <laughs> Grammy, three years later. <laughs> There's no room on the mantelpiece, is there? <laughs> it was... Um, Blue Note was telling Cassandra to rearrange Standard. Because it was a period whereby people like Charlie Hayden, uh, a lot of the jazz masters at Blue Note Records, Vibe Records, they were re rearranging. It was a period whereby America was into rearranging standard. And Cassandra happened to, Bruce Landover, the president of Blue Note, I think we were on a, on a tour at that time, made a call. And um, Cassandra called me that he liked me to be associate producer. So we went into studio rearrange some of the tracks, you know, change it around, like Dust My Broom. The beauty of that lovely album is that we hired a home in Jackson, Mississippi, down south, instead of recording it in L.A., you know, that Blue Note one. So musician can have a space. You know, you do it at your time. And I think it was done in a kind of in school. So you talk about a musical home, of course, Birmingham is now your home, and just tell me a little bit about your family and how you're settled here now and how you feel about Birmingham, honestly. I like Birmingham. Birmingham is like Ibadan, which is the second largest city in Nigeria. It's different to Lagos, of course. London people, I've lived in London. I like Birmingham. I like the, they say what they see and they say what they mean. So thank God, at least English people for a change are telling us what they mean. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> and it makes life easy. And um, the food is there. And I like country, you know. And from here you can, yeah, I, I like it. I'm settling in. Yeah, <laughs> settling in. How long have you been here now? Five years. Yeah, okay. Yeah. No, no rush. <laughs> and you're so much part of the community now that you've got a little project down in Digbeth called Birmingham Jazz Radio as well. Yes. That's, that's something that's obviously very important to you, trying to get that off the ground. Um, the idea of the Birmingham Jazz Radio is like a um, contribution to the community. When I used to live in New York, WBGO saved me a lot in New York. And in New Orleans, W0Z. I mean, I can be anywhere, touring, whatever. And I thought to myself, Birmingham has this diversity of great music. We call it Birmingham Jazz Radio, but anything goes. Even if you got a punk thing going, anything goes. It's internet radio station. The idea is to kind of celebrate the diversity that I think is here. That's one of the reasons I moved here. You know, I like it. I like it's about, they said, up to about 52 nations right here. And if that 52 nation, everybody's bringing their music out, that means you're going to have, wow, diversity. So the reason why we call it jazz is because to com complement the Botchfield Jazz Festival that we do in the north of Birmingham every year, this is the sixth year, is to play what you don't get on Jazz FM, is to play the music that you don't get at Symphony Hall, is to play the underdog music. I mean, when people refer to jazz, they think it's North American music alone. No, jazz goes on Cuba, it goes on in South America, it goes on in South Africa. The South Africa, they're the baddest jazz musicians after the Americans. They are really strong. So it's to play all those kind of celebrations. I mean, like Andy Hamilton when he was here, like Monte Alessandro. Those are great, great jazz musicians from Caribbean, like uh, Ronda Russell, um, beautiful uh, jazz musician, piano player. You know, it's to play all these kind of celebrations. That is not just only North America. And we have some great jazz musicians in Birmingham, Soweto Kinch. Oh, yeah, Soweto Sosa. Sosa yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. Listen, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. It's been fascinating. We could speak for hours, but we're not allowed to. But it's been wonderful. Thank you very uh, much. Yeah. Lakeham Babalola, thank you. Thank you. On Record, In Conversation is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for the Birmingham Music Archive and presented by Birmingham 2022 Festival with the generous support of Arts Council England and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. <laughs>